gaming technologies are solving fundamental technical challenges about the way that we are going to use the internet in the future. I believe we're at the beginning of a couple decades long massive shift in the way that companies um, offer their goods and services to the world the same way that happened with the last crank of the internet. Brands that understand how to make that transition more seamless uh, are, in my opinion, going to win. Well, hello, listeners. Happy New Year. We are back with the first episode of the new year here on Views from the Crow's Nest. You already heard a little bit of it there at the beginning. It's just a skosh. It's a crumb, a taste of the conversation we had with our guest, Trevor Barron, on emerging trends in immersive entertainment. We'll hear a lot more about Trevor in just a minute, but among many other things, he is one of our founding partners here at Fisher Jordan. His career path has led him to some fascinating places. He joins us today to share some insights gained from his work with CloudTree Ventures, which is focused on the technologies driving interactive entertainment and the metaverse. We get into both some broad trends and specific use cases and applications of the immersive entertainment space, which includes things like augmented and virtual reality, but you'll quickly learn that there are things happening in this domain that go far beyond just entertainment or gaming. As always, we are grateful to all the people who take the time to come onto this podcast and chat with us about the work they're doing. It's always an interesting time, and we hope you enjoy the discussions as much as we do. Finally, before we get into the conversation, uh, just a reminder that you can check out the show notes for this episode to find expanded definitions of some key terms, as well as links to things that we reference in the discussion. That does include any relevant social channels for our guests and additional resources or publications that might be brought up during the episode. That's it for the housekeeping. Let's get to the main attraction. Welcome to 2022 and welcome to the crow's nest. Well, we are good to go here. Gentlemen, welcome to uh, this episode of the podcast. Great to have you both on. Today, we've got uh, Trevor Barron uh, here to talk about um, some emerging trends in immersive entertainment. And as always, my co-host, Boaz Salek, uh, here with us. Guys, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. Hi, Nathan. How are you? You know, I am doing okay myself. Thank you for asking. Um Let's get things started with just a quick intro. Trevor, I'd love for you to just give a maybe elevator pitch version of your work, who you are, what you do. Um, we can go into a little bit more detail later, um, but just uh, help us get to know you a little bit here. Sure, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be on the podcast. I am one of the founding partners uh, at Fisher Jordan and um, spent a lot of my career in data analytics driven consulting uh, here in New York City, where I live. I've had a few other chapters to my career that um, have turned out to be quite relevant to some of the emerging trends we're going to talk about today. Uh, one of those is in real estate, where I spent some time developing hospitality concepts. And um, another one of those chapters more recently has been in the SPAC market. Uh, where I've been working as a sponsor and executive advisor to a few different SPACs 
where we've transitioned private companies into the public market um, via uh, a SPAC, which has obviously been a very explosive sector over the last, uh, I guess I would say about five years. And um, this kind of led me to an interesting opportunity set around technology companies that are still private that are looking to grow rapidly into a new area of opportunity we're going to discuss today um, associated with uh, CloudTree Ventures, um, our fund, which is investing in the space. So that's a little about me. My, my background is a mixture of technology and business. I studied aerospace engineering and computer science and um, have spent uh, the better part of the last 20 years uh, helping businesses think about strategy and growth. I love it. And I'm excited to get into a little bit more detail on that. Um, well, let's start with a super broad question. Uh, just getting your take. When we say immersive entertainment, what are we talking about? Why is this relevant today? Uh, and why should people be taking notice of this at all? Sure. Immersive entertainment really is a phrase that we coined in order to articulate the thesis we have um, about the space. I think that the largest, um, most known kind of business inside of this umbrella of immersive entertainment is esports. And so esports uh, are um, kind of more commonly understood to be a very fast growth mechanism for people to engage in online games, historically a lot via PCs, but increasingly via console and mobile, where they're interacting with low latency on um, gaming titles where multiple people can be playing the game at the same time. And this might be 10 people, it could be 100 people, 1,000, 500,000, millions, or even billions of people simultaneously. And um, I started taking notice of the eSport trend about three or four years ago, became very compelled by the way the numbers of users were growing and the companies like Epic Games and Riot and other ones um, were seeing their, their kind of growth and revenue and valuation increase and started to think about what gaming meant for the next generation uses of the internet. Uh, and so interactive entertainment is a, kind of an umbrella category that uh, includes esports as well as some other gaming modalities um, that aren't really labeled as esports, including physical gaming um, that has a crossover into virtual uh, augmented reality kinds of gaming with titles like Pokemon Go and non um, non sort of video game uh, modalities of using technology for people to interact in a peer-to-peer -peer way. Got it. That's a, that's a great summary. And uh, obviously, there's, there's more detail to go into. And I am aware of some of the things that you're talking about with, with eSports. And, and of course, there's the Pokemon Go thing that was all over the, the public consciousness a, a while back. But uh, it's been really interesting to watch the way that that's kind of evolved um, and the way it continues to. Let's talk a little bit about you and CloudTree specifically, um, how you're involved in this space. Can you give us a little bit more detail on, on CloudTree specifically and how, how you even got into uh, this industry right now? Sure. 
Uh, I'm one of four managing partners at CloudTree, and um, we became quite compelled thinking about this space over the last about three years and talking to various companies that were growing quickly. Um, some of the other partners who whom I would I'm sure would enjoy uh, the podcast as well or being part of the podcast um, have also a fair amount of investment history into the space, including being early investors up to about 10 years ago into pretty well-known public companies uh, of the likes of Unity, which is um, a big gaming engine that is now north of a $40 billion valuation, um, Twitch, which is a streaming platform um, that gamers and streamers use in order to distribute uh, kind of one-to-many content and uh, a few other um, types of companies in the space, including esports teams, et cetera. And given this long period of observation about what's going on in the space and sort of seeing how mergers and acquisitions are rolling together different technologies for more and more business use cases, which we can talk a, lo a little bit about, um, we realized there's a real opportunity, kind of like there was an opportunity 15, 20 years ago to invest in internet 2.0 technologies that um, have obviously experienced a, an amazing value appreciation trajectory. Uh, we think there's that same opportunity today to invest in technologies that are going to experience a similar kind of growth um, and have a similarly disruptive effect on the way that business is done, even for large legacy brands and the Fortune 100. So we started looking at the space and, um, and, and talking to various companies uh, to organize our investment thesis uh, around the space, which I'm, I'm happy to go more into. Love it. If you wanted to just unpack that now, we could delve into that. So our investment thesis, in summary, is that gaming technologies are solving fundamental technical challenges about the way that we are going to use the internet in the future. And to be simplistic about it, gaming is a hard use case that enables massive parallel peer-to-peer -peer use. So hundreds of millions or even billions of people, if you think about titles like Fortnite, where um, multiple different parties get to interact with extremely low latency, if we're talking about a, a kind of gaming title where you're you know, aiming and shooting at something. Um, and that low latency needs to work across this disparate set of people who could be in different geographies who are likely accessing via different devices, some on PC, some on mobile. Indeed, about half of online access today is via mobile um, on different amounts of bandwidth because obviously the amount of um, kind of data pipe you have available to you on, uh, say, a mobile device um, far outside of the internet core is different than if you're kind of wired, uh, you know, directly in via PC, um, and you're and you're near to the fiber trunk, um, and so you've got this varying degree of quality of access, and yet you're trying to deliver immersive, engaging, low latency experiences 
And the other part that gaming has pushed to the forefront is the peer-to-peer -peer use case. And so in many of these gaming titles, a lot of the information and the interaction is between, let's call them audience members or co-gamers or peers. And so, you know, full spatial audio, um, high bandwidth video, all of these things are getting shared from peer to peer. And this wasn't really the kind of use case for which the internet was originally designed. And so we see that um, gaming is, is solving for and pushing forward the really difficult technical um, kind of challenges and overcoming them and is well-funded enough to overcome them. And we think that those use cases are going to end up being some of the dominant mechanisms for how the internet is used going forward over the next couple of decades. And this plays to a lot of the bigger themes we've recently seen getting picked up um, for things like the metaverse and um, companies like Facebook uh, kind of changing their orientation to embrace this idea that peer-to-peer um, -peer interaction is going to be the key for how we engage with and, and use the internet. So Trevor, you, you mentioned um, gaming companies, but I'm, uh, am I right to infer that you're thinking a little bit more broadly? So it's not just the game publishers specifically, but it includes the physical layer, includes the protocol layer, it includes the operating system layer. You're talking kind of more broadly about setting up the new um, the new infrastructure for these capabilities? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, while individual gaming titles may experience the success and the business model that allows them to fund the solution to these problems, um, those solutions, once, um, once solved, become applicable to every game and even other use cases far beyond games. And so that's that's really our particular area of interest is not to um, kind of take a bet or take risk into a given title, which could have, you know, a certain, uh, a relatively short half-life, let's call it. Um, but we're much more interested in the underlying problems that get solved and the effective platform that's getting built underneath them, as you mentioned. And uh, I know that we are going to talk a little bit later about some of that underlying infrastructure uh, definitely want to make time for that. I really want to jump off of what you were talking about into our next question, um, where you've you mentioned a, of a, a couple of different companies that are well known in in their innovation in, in some of the space here. Like the topic of AR and VR isn't new, right? But um, we are starting to see some significant motion and innovation, or at least some initial investment in R and D. For a lot of companies that are starting to that are looking to make that pivot that you were talking about, um, I'm curious what your take is here. Why do you think that this is happening now? I think this is a natural, or organic um, evolution of the use case of the internet. I do think the COVID pandemic pushed a lot of people into um, the earlier adoption, maybe than otherwise of some of the virtual meeting technology, certainly, but even um, into VR and AR, uh, where otherwise it might have taken a few years longer. So I do think there was a COVID effect that made it kind of relevant um, and showed people that there is a 
problem to be solved that was an other than entertainment gaming problem, i.e. a business problem or the other kind of socializing problem that technology can, can help solve for. So I think some of those things have accelerated the trends. For Facebook, um, I don't know if I would really call their rebranding a strong pivot, honestly, um, in terms of the overall direction of their company. Mm -hmm. um, it it's, was validating for us to see Facebook kind of change its name into Meta and embrace the the concepts and ideas of the metaverse, um, because you know one could argue they're they're not really a gaming use; they're a social uh, community use, and um, and so this plays to our thesis. But Facebook acquired Oculus, I think it was a few years ago, um, and has been probably the single largest um, company that is investing in the peer-to-peer -peer and social use case of virtual reality technology. And um, we, we know well one of the interesting entrepreneur founders who brokered that deal into Facebook uh, and, um, and continues to evolve new and interesting platforms for the use of VR and AR tech. Um, so, I, so I don't think it was actually a hard pivot for them in particular. The one that I think actually has made, that I've seen recently, has made kind of maybe stronger visible pivot is Microsoft. So um, if you look at the last uh, Microsoft Ignite conference, um, you'll kind of see in this uh, keynote from the CEO um, how they talk about where they're taking their um, virtual meeting platforms like Teams as well as Altspace and some other things, Mesh, how they're taking those into the future. And Microsoft being a very strong B2B player is looking at a number of ways, particularly for AR and with their Microsoft HoloLens to get used in everything from uh, industrial manufacturing to healthcare. And um, there's a very, compelling set of uh, experiences and examples that they're clearly investing a ton into on R&D. Um, and, and to me, that did represent actually a pretty uh, clear new strategy direction that they articulated, which was very exciting for us. So let's talk a little bit about just some overall trends that you've been noticing. You've gone into a little bit of detail here, but uh, anything else that you're observing uh, and w again, why you think that's relevant to the, the larger conversation here. Sure. Um, there are some kind of bigger macro trends that are coming together in this moment uh, that if we kind of take a step back and zoom out onto a you know, 10, 20 year time scale, um, I, I think uh, one of the things I would mention is um, a trend called OMO or online merged with offline. So this is the idea that instead of thinking of how you spend your time interfacing with the world, either kind of physically directly or via some kind of virtual platform, be it your phone and your apps and um, various other ways you can do it online or VR, augmented reality, et cetera. Um, I think there's a temptation to think of those two things as sort of like a zero-sum game. You're either in physical world or you're in the virtual world. In Asia over the last decade, uh, the term OMO was coined to reflect something different, which is the merging of these two experiences, online merged with offline. 
Um, and here you're existing and experiencing the world simultaneously in the physical and virtual. And so augmented reality is sort of a direct metaphor for that kind of engagement where you're looking around, you can see what's going on, you can react to people, you can see their faces and eyes, but you can have sort of a heads up display that overlays um, kind of a virtual component to it. And that trend has been going on for a long time. Um, and that merger of these two kinds of experience and, and portability back and forth is something that I think some of the most forward thinking and forward looking brands um, have both figured out and have been working on for a while. Like a prototypical example is Disney, where they took a bunch of um, intellectual property that they created in a sort of virtual theatrical you know, world with um, all, all of the different uh, animation titles that they created and then created a physical world environment into which you can go and experience those things. So it's kind of the direct translation of that um, virtual IP into physical space. But another example I like is Carvana, where they've understood that you can replace a pretty lame physical experience of going to buy a used car in a dealership with something that is a mixture of um, physical and virtual service model. And they've woven it together in a way that um, I think is a good example of how a progressive brand can delight and inspire its customers on both of those dimensions. So it's not pure virtual and it's not pure physical. There is, uh, when you buy a car on a Carvana, um, let's call it 90% of the experience is via apps and everything is remote and it's pretty quick and easy. You can virtually tour your car and all this uh, good stuff. But when the car actually shows up physically, that's also uh, kind of an important and branded part of their experience. And they make the physical part also interesting and brand consistent uh, and kind of solve some some problems with the the historic legacy model where they give you free returns and they kind of give you insurance and warranties away from some of the issues with uh with used cars and they'll come both drop off the car to you physically wherever you are and pick it up uh, on one of their branded trucks so uh you know i think that trend has been going on for a while and i think that the brands of the future are going to understand how to deliver their goods and services um, seamlessly across the physical and virtual and reach their clients and their customers wherever they sit. So you see someone like Amazon also beginning to dip their toe back into physical space after having been a pretty virtual brand. Um, and I think uh, since we, on average in, in North America, spend about 50% of our time online and 50% of our time offline, there's a huge switching cost, mental switching cost, in jumping back and forth between the two. Brands that understand how to make that transition more seamless uh, are, in my opinion, going to win. In the same way that Internet 2.0 disrupted the way virtually every business interacted with its clients or its customers and delivered its goods and services, I believe the same magnitude of disruption is going to happen as companies adopt a more peer-to-peer, -peer, a more human-like interaction model with their customers through which to discover their goods and services. And I think every brand and every company is trying to figure out how to do this now.
And that is something that kind of, you know, Facebook changing to Meta and some of the other headlines that have come out in this space, I think have indicated to the executives and strategists inside of the Fortune 100 that they need to understand how they port and adapt their businesses to meet their customers where they're hanging out. And if their customers are hanging out kind of half in the physical world and half in the virtual world, I think there's going to be both a huge amount of pressure and a huge amount of reward for those companies and brands that understand that well. So I believe we're at the beginning of a couple decades long massive shift in the way that companies um, offer their goods and services to the world the same way that happened with the last crank of the internet. The other trend I would mention is mobile. Because so much of the access point for how we engage with companies, brands, and people is via our mobile devices, this is calling for a uh, reshaping of the way the network works sitting behind the mobile device. So, you know, mobile devices are limited by their nature in batteries, processing power, GPU, screen size, et cetera. And as we seek to create ever more engaging and immersive experiences via mobile, um, we're going to have to solve for some technical challenges of how, for instance, to push more computing power closer to the far edge so that your mobile device can offload certain kinds of processing that it otherwise would need to do to give you kind of rich content. Um, and indeed, some of the more hardware infrastructure opportunities that we're interested in um, relate to this kind of what's called far-edge computing type of technology, um, where you can leverage some of the um, compute and uh, kind of built-in capacity of the cellular networks and make that available to people programming experiences that you know they want to kind of push out to the edge. Trevor, I, I wanted to kind of, um, this might be a little bit of a half a step back, but um, earlier when we were talking about leaders in the space, is there kind of one person or organization that you would consider kind of the evangelist for the metaverse or for immersive technologies? Not really. I think that um, there are a few people who've published interesting material on the matter. Um, one of those is Matthew Ball, uh, who's probably been one of the most prolific writers uh, on the subject from a kind of business and white paper perspective. And uh, I like a lot of the stuff that he's written. Um, but I think that this is more like a co-evolution of, of thinking. Uh, you could argue that um, Elon Musk, with some of his kind of neural uh, businesses, direct neural interaction businesses, is aiming for the end game, which, you know, from his perspective, might look more like a matrix kind of plug-in type system. Um, where your reality is uh, kind of directly getting sensed via connection to various kinds of you know, neural manipulation technology. Um, and you could argue that people like Bezos understood 
that legacy industries like retail are going to hop on to virtual platforms. But I don't think there's any one person at this moment who stands out um, as really leading the pack. I think that there are a number of really interesting founder entrepreneurs solving different pieces of the puzzle who have a unified vision for what the outcome is going to look like. Got it. And I, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't take note that most of the names you mentioned are part of the existing guard, so to speak. And if you use, if you kind of use a similar analogy, you're using Web 2.0, where you actually had a lot of displacements, right? You had Google displacing Yahoo, you know, you had Facebook displacing arguably AOL or, you know, whatever kind of the previous um, top networking technology was before then, et cetera, et cetera. And it's probably like that for, for most kind of big technological jumps. I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a big jump that is ushered in by the existing guard. So are there any new guard players that you think could be, um, you know, potential ringleaders for this coming trend? I think that we are still in a relatively early moment to conclude who some of those new guard actors are. I do think there are some well-capitalized businesses that probably have a strong growth trajectory in front of them. The two I would maybe mention are NVIDIA and Unity, which we already spoke about potentially also Unreal Engine. Um, these are the two leading gaming engines in which you can create a virtual world um, that multiple players can interact with, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, Unity is a good example of our thesis in action. Unity started as a gaming technology for PC gamers to be able to experience lower latency, high frame rate, compelling, worlds as they're playing their games and over time has expanded its product lines and its use cases far beyond gaming uh, now more than half of nvidia's revenues come from other than gaming use cases and one can argue that their technology has been disruptive to fintech since really the whole kind of crypto and mining code base runs off of uh, GPUs that are powered by companies like NVIDIA. And um, Unreal, I'll, I'll use an example from them since we talked about Unity before already. Unreal um, is, a, is a great engine for creating photorealistic uh, worlds. And during COVID times, um, we saw the use case again, moving far beyond gaming um one of the companies we're really interested in is um thinking about how to use unreal engine in what's called xr production so and i think this will be a complete disruptor for the way movies are made in hollywood so kind of the legacy way of filming and um you know in, in hollywood is a mixture of on location and in studio and if you can do things in studio it's a lot cheaper because you can control a lot of variables, you don't have to worry about the weather, you're not transporting people all over the place, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the way that we shot things in studio, but then kind of 
sold the gag of them being in the real world historically has been green screen. So you have actors with a green screen behind them, you film them, they have the action, and they go back after and you composite uh, some other background behind and, and fill in where the green was. That's kind of old generation tech. The latest generation tech uses, instead of a green screen, an LED wall with high enough resolution that um, the actors and photographers and, and everyone sort of in the film crew can interact with. Now the, um, the background and the action can be live and filled in and actors can relate to and engage with stuff that's going on on this, this massive LED volume that's sitting behind, above and below them. And um, the interesting thing here that relates to our thesis is that they're building that whole world that allows for um, photorealistic uh, parallax and bokeh and all of these sort of different photographic elements um, that um, film pr uh, producers or production companies are, are used to using and we're used to seeing in, in the cinema. They're allowing for that to all happen in real time. So the practical upshot of which is we can um, now stage something with, inside of an LED volume using Unreal Engine sitting behind it and um, do a lot more of the shots that formerly had to be on location inside the studio. And that's saving a lot of money, um, kind of 20 to 30%, which is absolutely industry disruptive. So, you know, I do think that um, the engines and the, the, the sort of uh, kind of platform plays, both hardware, platforms, middleware, um, those are going to end up being disruptive to a lot of legacy industries. And that's the way in which they'll probably climb to larger and larger valuations. I want to get back a little bit to the talk about the infrastructure layer. Um, you talked earlier about mobile but what kind of an infrastructure will need to be in place for this kind of technology to come to fruition? Sure. Well, I think the pieces are clearly already in place because a lot of the experiences we're talking about uh, are happening. But the pressure here is to keep enriching the experience and to create more channels of bandwidth from peer to peer. So um, I can imagine a near future where um, today, uh, really, we're only addressing kind of one sense well, which is the, the visual sense. Um, so we have pretty good streaming and we have, you know, lots of good compression protocols and um, the, the uses of internet technology, um, you know, seem to have advanced quite a lot in how we think about video and and how you know sort of video streaming is being used i'd say audio is lagging behind a little bit it's the next most addressed sense but we don't have for instance full really good full spatial audio um i either from the implementation of the codex perspective or the hardware layer where you know i i see at some point in the near future almost every kind of headphone that you buy will probably have gyroscopes inside of it so that it has the input data to allow you to have full spatial audio so that when you're experiencing something, um, for instance, in augmented reality, and you turn your head, the um, soundscape from the virtual world is gonna turn with you. Um, the other 
next senses, kind of going down the list, are going to be haptic. And there's some pretty interesting emerging haptic technologies. Um, and you, know, you don't actually, it turns out you don't need to do that much with haptics in order to sort of fool your brain into filling in the, the gaps, let's call it. So um, some interesting things out there with um, gloves and suits and um, actually quite a lot of work being done with air haptics, where for instance, um, you can have like a three-dimensional holographic display or augmented reality uh, glasses, whatever. Um, and there's some objects where you can kind of reach out and touch it with your hand as your hand approaches this, you know, object that you're you're seeing, um, a jet of air will come up from uh, kind of a, a surface that's projecting very fine, uh, let's just call them voxels of um, of pressure uh, up to your hands. And you know, it's the tech is already there well enough to sort of sell the gag, where your brain kind of feels like, oh, I just touched something, um, and that again, further enriches your experience um, of of that universe or that reality. Um, and then the last one I'd say that's probably coming next, and this is a bit earlier stage, but we are seeing some early, early entrance into it, is um, smell or olfactory. And um, here, combining with some of the air jet stuff, um, you know, smell is an incredibly powerful emotional um, experience maker. And there are some interesting technologies emerging whereby a large number of the smells you have on a daily basis um, can get replicated uh, by about 20 different component chemicals um, that are, are not unhealthy for you, um, that you can kind of mix and match and recover various different scent profiles for, for short periods of time. Uh, and so I think that will also come into um, existence. So there'll be a mixture of uh, kind of end user access point hardware evolution, which is kind of already in play uh, for all of the senses I just described on various different um, levels of advancement. But then the um, pipes, the bandwidth to be able to service uh, this kind of more enriched sensory experience. Um, that's where I also think there's going to be some innovation in the standards, the protocols, and the um, availability of bandwidth and the uh, kind of managing and balancing of how you both transmit that data and then how you process and interpret it. Again, given the sort of limitations on battery power and CPU that inevitably um, are always going to be uh, there to some degree on mobile devices versus on um, on fixed devices. So I think that um, there's there's a lot of innovation to come, and these are some of the things that are likely going to change. I have to ask: Have you either read or seen Ready Player One? Like, obviously, I'm I'm thinking about this with with all this talk, but like, just a quick aside: Have have you have you encountered that at all? Yeah, sure, of course. Ready Player One, Minority Report, um, Her. I don't know if you saw that one. Yeah, there's a few different uh, sort of sci-fi realizations of you know how this could all play out. And um, I definitely think that there are elements in all of those that 
not only are going to come to be, but that are actually inspiring some of the technologists to create. They present a vision of an end state that um, you know people can rally around. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to accidentally pigeonhole myself too much. Like It feels like when we talk about this, largely people either reference the matrix or they reference Ready Player One. But especially when you're talking about haptics, I read the book, so like the way that he described the technology, um, I was like, this actually feels really plausible. And I know that there are some, I feel like I read about at least one flight simulator that was experimenting with incorporating haptics into their training modules. Um, so there's some really interesting applications for all this stuff going forward uh, that goes beyond just experience type encounters like you were you were describing and also getting into training modules and and so on yeah uh, i don't think that the constraint to realizing any of those visions today is technological i think the constraint is making the um, platforms available that creators can engage with easily in order to uh, kind of create all of these these worlds and these experiences. I mean, think of how much energy and effort and how many decisions are required to create a compelling world that you can uh, interact with. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played the game um, Red Dead Redemption 2, mm. uh, but just, I mean, they spent nine years working on this with just armies and armies of coders and lighters and shaders and architects and designers and character makers and clothing designers, et cetera, et cetera. It's huge production. Um, and when you're Rockstar Games and you've built an in-house utility to do that, that's great. You can you know, keep sort of using that utility. But if you're a legacy brand or you're uh, a non-specialty business actor, how do you do that? And I think the answer is, via platforms the way that we use things like um you know the adobe creative suite and autodesk and um, various other things uh, that are built for purpose to make it easier and to fill in a lot of the automatable parts of the creation of a world i think that's actually the the limiting factor at the moment well let's take a, a second for just a brief uh timeline here basically how did things get this way from maybe the 90s on and the reason why i want to do that is because i i feel like a, a historical context to the extent that we can get one uh for where we've been and where we are could help people understand where we might be going so i would say web 2.0 um i would define that as the broad scale use of browser technology um, for people to be able to interact with um, more visual objects um, and media objects in a way that could be woven together into this kind of browser space. And so um, the early incarnations of this were just the establishment of a standard, right? HTML um, and W3 getting together and saying, we need one common language that is going to allow these different websites to link to each other, to interact with each other, and it's going to allow browsers to be able to have a user navigate amongst all these different sites. What a disaster if you have to have uh, you know, different browsers for different parts of the experience. That's kind of where we're at um, in this moment. 
with the metaverse. So navigating from one person's metaverse to a different metaverse is not even possible today. And um, we have to align on a set of standards to allow that to be possible. And we have to create browsers um, that are widely adopted for people to be able to navigate amongst different experiences. And the um, challenge here is a slightly different one in that um, in Internet 2.0 days, uh, your presence inside of each of these spaces was kind of generally a footnote. So in client-server technology, um, the clients aren't really carrying with them that much information that other clients see. Whereas in the um, Web3 kind of use case, you're carrying a lot of information. You're carrying your avatar, you're carrying potentially live output of information about what you look like and what you're saying and your audio and this, that, and the other thing. So standards have to get put into place to allow for that portability of experiences so that we can hop from one universe to another the way that you see uh, in something like Ready Player One that you were mentioning. I think that the fundamental nature of the way that we can interact with Web3 is going to be quite different from what is kind of a passive click mode of interaction that happened in Web 2.0, where someone has information or I want to execute a transaction. And so, you know, I'm scrolling around in this two dimensional space and then like taking actions that allow me to transact. I think that in the metaverse kind of metaphor for how we're going to interact, it's going to be more powerful to have increasingly human-like interactions because the uh, idea here is that the virtual spaces are going to more completely and richly emulate our three-dimensional physical space that we're in. So I think that the use cases are gonna be slightly different. I think that the way ad tech is gonna work is gonna be completely different, uh, again, in a, in a sort of human physical or just physical analogy the way that a brand is going to make you aware of its presence and know that contextually it's relevant depending on where you are and what you're navigating through are going to be quite different than the way it was in web 2.0 land but in the same ways that web 2.0 allowed for companies to contextually deliver goods and services gather a lot of data and information about who to target and how, um, I think those same um, fundamentals are going to be true for Web3 technology. And so those companies that understand how to leverage these new modalities are going to quickly outclass those that don't. Trevor, um, I'm just curious, you mentioned the, the frequency of interaction and the depth of interaction and uh, can't help but thinking about the way things are today, at least how some of these con consumer facing, you know, like, like the gaming companies or, or kind of any any company that has a consumer face to it, uh, they kind of live and die these days by the monthly active user metric, right? That's kind of what their valuation is based on and that's what they try to optimize for. So based on what you just said, do you, do you foresee that metric becoming less relevant over time and if so, what do you think that, that the new MAU metric will be in a metaverse-dominated um, scenario? Great question. 100%, I think the metric will change. I'd put forth 
that the metric needs to be a measure of body heat inside of any given space. So the basic measure is going to be if I define a world that I want people to come hang out in and zero people are ever in that world, there's like no value in that space. Um, but if there's a lot of people simultaneously, then there's going to be some amount of value to be created in the space. So I think the metric could be something like um, concurrent user hours, and uh, that'll end up indicating um, both how successful my concept is in creating engagement um, and also allowing for rich peer-to-peer -peer interaction, which doesn't happen as well out of time. So that's why I want it to be concurrent. And I also think um, sort of as a follow-on to that idea that all of the metrics for ad tech are going to evolve similarly to become some measure of engagement. So today we use CPM. It's, uh, you know, or impression kind of pricing for our ad tech uh, in, in kind of web 2.0. And I think um, in our next evolutions of, of the use of the web, we're gonna evolve more to things like engaged user hours or engaged user seconds, um, because I think that those are gonna end up being much better predictors of how interested people are in, in transacting. A really good question, Boaz. Thanks for that. We've talked a lot about, particularly in the augmented reality space, the massive amount of data intake that needs to happen for that to work. I feel like we can't leave this conversation without talking about potential privacy and security risks um, and just other risks and roadblocks that you that you anticipate further down the line in the development of this technology, Trevor. What do you have to say about that? Well, I think people tend to mention the metaverse, even gaming and esports and interactive entertainment, in the same cluster of thoughts as they talk about blockchain and NFT technology. And it's interesting that there's this dialogue going on uh, between user-generated, user-created, user-owned IP and information and content, and this kind of more generally accessible, in some cases, transparent and ledgered pool of information that um, everyone gets access to. And there is an interesting question about who gets to own it. So on the one hand, if you, if you just look at Internet 2.0, you could argue that no one owns the Internet, right? You could argue that um, it's this utility that we all get access to globally, and certainly it has democratized lots of things, lots of access to information and goods and services and so on. But you could also argue that actually the Internet is owned by um, a few mega corporations who disproportionately have control and access and server power and data, especially, um, about how people are uh, interacting with and, and using it. Um, and I think that same dialogue is going to continue into the metaverse. I think that with the ability to learn more about people, which clearly you're going to be able to in this sort of always-on metaverse model, because there's more that's knowable than in a more client-server, point-click uh, kind of interaction mode. Um, there's going to be a lot of, I think, argument about who gets to see or not see different aspects of, um, of that interaction. Certainly, 
the standards and the platform creators are probably going to think a lot more and harder today than they did at internet sort of 2.0 moment about what kind of controls to empower um, access points or end users with in terms of how their information does or doesn't get stored either explicitly or implicitly in you know the various logs and um, in, in other ways that you can get information even if you haven't explicitly given your privacy consent so i mean i think that'll be i don't know if i call it a risk but it'll be one of the um major investments of time and energy um, to try to sort through that i think in terms of other large-scale risks to this evolution happening I don't know. I mean, I see the hardware all evolving in that way. I see lots of funding becoming available for it. I see the Fortune 100 sort of pivoting towards it. So I think aside from this, this sort of headline issue of user access, privacy, um, and adoption, really, is what it would translate into, um, I, I think that's probably the main issue I see. With our last uh, question here, can you just share a little bit about the type of companies that CloudTree is interested in or looking at? Um, maybe they all have something in common that they're doing. What can you tell us about that? Well, actually, our thought process around um, taking an interest in companies is more of what I would call constructing a raft kind of thesis. So we're interested in almost a, a horizontal slice across various different um, hardware, software, platform, and use cases as um, this, this kind of disruptive wave flows through the system. Um, so some of the examples that I'll give you, we're, we probably aren't going to take 10 bets on one particular subsector. Uh, we're going to maybe take one bet on a given subsector, but that bet's informed by the way that we think it cross feeds or has synergies with uh, other companies we're also interested in. So I'll just give you a, a list of some of the ones that um, we're deep into right now. One is a virtual event platform that um, pretty cool. Imagine going to you know a Madison Square Garden or a large scale music concert like Lollapalooza uh, or large scale gathering like a Burning Man. Um, and being able to translate all of the design, staging, lighting, sound system uh, investment you made into the metaverse and then making that available for people to experience via a VR or an AR or even a um, projected hologram into space kind of technology, either simultaneously or out of time but um, where you can have deep interaction with the audience members, which is a huge part of the reason you go to these events. Um, so one of our companies of high interest is, is doing that. Very cool, very cool tech. And I have to say, up until I strapped on the glasses and went into the world, uh, I hadn't really experienced a compelling vision for how this can all work with um, a high degree of interactivity between avatars or, or actors that are in it. Uh, and um, this this uh, particular company I'm thinking of showed me that it has already happened, which is was pretty cool. Um, another company we're looking at is more on the 
hardware kind of tech layer. I alluded to them before. They're doing far edge compute where they've actually secured contracts to leverage underutilized server space inside of the carrier networks, but federate them together so that if you want to go launch an experience that can go reach people globally on their phones instead of needing to be the size of, you know, Amazon or Netflix, um, you can do it via this particular platform that abstracts all of the compute balancing and distribution. So um, you don't have to worry about any of that. They actually have a pretty cool business model where it's almost like the Airbnb model for servers. So um, you don't have to lock into any long-term contracts uh, and kind of scale up and down the way you, you do with an S3. Um, another company is focused on just music in the metaverse. And so creating the kinds of channels and experiences that can move with you or track with you um, or allow artists and musicians and brands and labels to push their content and monetize it effectively in all of these different virtual venues that we're going to be creating. You know, another interesting company is creating a no-code version of a gaming engine creation platform. So like a no-code version of Unity or a no-code version of Unreal, where you kind of architect and build the spaces in AR. Uh, so similarly to how you might recall, like in Minority Report, where you can move things around on the screen, um, this technology allows you to place and size and script interaction with objects uh, inside of uh, VR. So Creator can build a world without needing to code. Um, and so this gives you a flavor for some of the kinds of things we're interested in. I love it. Well, we're pretty much out of time here. Uh, any closing remarks, uh, particularly where people can find you online, uh, learn more about you and your work, or just anything last minute to plug here uh, before we wrap up? Sure, you can find out more about us and our thesis at cloudtree.vc. Um, and uh, happy to get together again with you and maybe bring in some of the other partners, uh, all of whom have uh, brilliant things to say about this sector, a really cool team, and um, looking forward to more. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Trevor, for joining us. And uh, Boaz, thanks for, um, as always, uh, being my co-host here. Really grateful to have you. And uh, it was a super interesting conversation. So hopefully we will be able to reconnect on some of this. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Boaz. Thanks again for listening here on Views from the Crow's Nest. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend or colleague. Writing a review or leaving a rating on whichever podcast app you use also helps this podcast become more discoverable to new listeners. As a reminder, you can always find and subscribe to Views from the Crow's Nest on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and more. And of course, you can always access it directly via podcast.fisherjordan.com. Finally, if you have any comments or questions on today's episode, or even if you have a suggested topic for our next view from the crow's nest, feel free to send us an email, engage at fisherjordan.com, and we will see you from the crow's nest.